Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. Subscribe to SubChina's daily access newsletter. Keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on the site at subchina.com, including reported stories, editorials, regular columns, a growing library of videos, and, of course, our podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim people in China's Xinjiang region to China's ambitious efforts to eliminate poverty. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world, covering China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. In recent weeks, China released some top-line data from its 2020 decennial census, and uh, probably to the surprise of very few people, it showed that China's population growth continues to slow. A lot. Hoped for gains in fertility from the change in family planning policy back in 2015 that allowed most families to have two children seems to have had very little effect. Uh, it has done very little to reverse the trend. Not long afterward, China finally formalized what many had speculated would be next, a further loosening with a push for young people to have more children. This three-child policy, however, seems to have been received in China with a collective Bronx cheer. Not surprisingly, we've seen a lot of commentary again on China's demographic destiny. So with me here today, actually in person for the first time in almost 16 months, very special, very special episode is Tsai Yong, who is associate professor in the Department of Sociology right here at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Dr. Tsai is one of the most widely cited specialists in China's social demography, and it's an honor to have him here uh, with on the show. Tsai Yong, welcome to Seneca and welcome to my house. <laughs> it's an um, such an honor and such a, you know, I don't know how to describe it. It's such a <laughs> revealing experience, just like... <laughs> Yeah. Hey, we are here. We are back in social life. Yeah, exactly. I'm sitting like less than six feet from you. It's That's fantastic. Right. Without uh, masks on. No masks. It's great. Yeah. Anyway, uh, let, let's jump right in here. Let's start with the 2020 census. Uh, so in late April, before any announcements, the Financial Times published an article with this attention-grabbing headline. It said, China is set to report first population decline in five decades. Uh, they ran this story after the official census had been concluded, but before government departments had reached any consensus on the census, <laughs> on the data, and before they had made these findings public. So you had some issues with the way that the Financial Times handled this report. What, what do you think that they did uh, and, and got wrong? Okay, I think just backtrack a little bit was because the Chinese National Bureau of Statistics did not provide its annual estimate of birth number for 2020 in its 2020 statistical bulletin for the pre prior years, you know, basic socioeconomic and uh, statistics. Mm -hmm. And usually in that report, they would provide the number of births in the prior year. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, they did not provide for the first time in long time. So that the end, but when the, the report was released, it was promised that a census number will come out in April. So the financial time, in a way, picked on that, say, hey, it's already April. We still don't see the number. What's going on? So, so all kinds of rumor come out to f be frying that speculation was right. the number of births was too low that it could imply for a negative population returns. And they cited that an insider, my I'm very much in doubt that they had a, any real insider to start with. 
Right, right. And you have your suspicions as to who that is, but you don't need to tell us. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's. Um, it was not surprisingly they came out with the actual census data l- later. And, you know, even though the, the whole set of data has not been released yet, just from the top line numbers that are out now, I mean, things like you know, only 12 million births, the slowest growth in, I think, what, half a century now. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, was there anything that's come out so far that was a surprise to you? Or that was noteworthy and, and maybe hasn't been given sufficient attention in the popular media. You know, I think one thing is that the the, the birth number itself, at twelve million, was very low. And uh, the, the but the interesting thing is they mentioned this number called one point three kids per woman in twenty twenty, right. and that was the first time actually the Chinese Bureau Census cited as most likely okay again they did not say exactly what was the source what time frame they were talking about but they are basically directly directly citing a census number to quantify the fertility in the previous census for example 2010 census 2000 census they often just you know let the number pass because they did not believe the number. And this time, seems like they believe in this number. They think this number is reflecting the reality on the ground that the Chinese fertility is truly low. It's not a statistical artifact. Huh. Okay, that's that's very interesting. Um, so I think we have more reason to believe that it's it's well, a reliable number. I mean, the 1.3, that's far below replacement rate. That's, that's right. So in the previous census, starting from, two, you know, roughly uh, 1990 census, and the problem get much worse in 2000 census because of the one-child policy. We knew at the time many people did not report their births, did not report their uh, uh, children, whether it's first child or second child, and there were lots of hidden kids in the population and they were later on revealed by like uh, enrollment number in, in schools and that's you know why we had a very strong suspicion on one hand we sort of look at the census as if that's a gold stand for you know evaluating all kinds of numbers in, uh, for Chinese population at the same time we have have had very strong suspicion about those numbers Right. Particularly the, for the uh, children and infants side, but same time seems like this time they have good confidence in this number. They are citing this number and using this number to justify this policy change. Just so uh, for a reference for people who don't follow demography really closely, what is the replacement rate? So the idea of replacement is very simple. Basically, for a population to replace itself, a woman on average need to have 2.1 kids, one for herself, one for her partner, and 0.1 to you know counter uh, to count in the infant sex mortality, ratio, uh, sex uh, ratio at uh, birth and infant mortality. That's right. 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 Yeah. Okay. So, so China's top-heavy demographic pressure, you know, the infamous four-two-one structure, uh, puts a lot of pressure on the country's social safety net. It raises very serious concerns about labor shortages, about health care costs, about much more. You know, so one of the fixes that is currently sort of on offer being discussed is raising the minimum retirement age as China has some of the uh, world's lowest, 60 years for men. I think it's 55 for women. That's right, for That's women. 55 right. for women. Uh, let's, let's talk about fixes like that one, about raising the retirement age, and some of the other policy changes that are being discussed to try to counter uh, this uh, decline, or, or not decline yet, but this you know, decline in population growth, at least, um, and the economic impacts that it's likely to, to bring about. What what are some of the things that they're talking about? Let's just start with the retirement age. So retirement age is very interesting. This idea of retirement, raising retirement age has been in discussion for quite a while. And at the macro level, everyone agree, you know, this we cannot go on like this for long because, you know, we do a very simple calculation. China's life expectancy is quickly approaching to 80. And basically, on average, people will live about 80 years. And if someone get out of school at 22, and retire at 60. You do the math. You spend more time not working than working. So that, that, that would not work. So basically everyone is talking about say, hey, we need to do this. But at the same time, if we talk to different people at the individual level, people have very, very different perspective. For younger generations, they say, hey, we want people to retire early so we can take up those senior positions. Right. For elderly, they say, hey, we have been working for so long that 
we you know want to enjoy our retirement early we want to get our retirement benefit so we you know don't want the retirement age to be re-raised for the you know uh, entrepreneurs for the companies say hey senior people are much harder to deal with yes they got experience they got all kinds of good things but at the same time <laughs> younger people have probably have higher productivity this you know age-based uh, discrimination is right there. So everyone's saying, hey, it's good for the, for the country to do that, but for, at an individual level, there are very strong resistance. And you know, China is indeed, you know, uh, basically demographic reality has settled in and the plan is to raise it all the way to probably at least 65 over the next decade also. For both genders? For both genders. I don't think that the gender-based, you know, uh, for female at 55. And right now, actually, some female can ask for earlier retirement at as early as 50. Right, right. Yeah. Wow, I'd be retired already. That'd be awesome if I were a Chinese woman. Um, but what, what about some of the other things that they're talking about? What I mean, we can get to this three-child policy and encouragement of, of births, but what about a policy like immigration? Is that even something that, that, that people discuss? You know, I don't think immigration has been uh, in, 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 in the Chinese discussion in any serious way because partly there are two things. Partly the Chinese population itself is so large. You can say, hey, if we want to have a large size of immigrants coming to China, that means, you know, where, where the source will be, where the, the, the immigrants will be coming from. Second, China is mostly a monolithic cultural you know, society and how to deal with immigration is something I don't think the society is ready for that. And there's, I don't think there's enough discussion. We're talking about you know, very pervasive racism, right? Um, That's the, right. Uh, I mean, we just look at this, a few thousand Africans living in the city of Guangzhou and, and how perennial that, that racist, race issue is, even with that such a small population. It's amazing to see, you know, how how stridently people oppose the idea of opening China to as a country of immigration. It's just really pretty shocking to me. But, you know, again, also not shocking at all. And okay, and finally, what about the this idea of pushing for increased numbers of births? What's the I, I've described the reaction as not not very enthusiastic, but you know, the I three think, child policy. Yeah, the three child policy, you know, we saw you know, I think this is a very big contrast to the, you know, two child policy when it was announced. You know, I think in general people were welcoming uh, uh, the, the policy change basically it gave people the opportunity, the possibility to have a third child, uh, to, to have a second child at a time. But this round, I based on maybe my reading is biased, but based on my reading on social media on Xinlang Weibo and you know, Peng uh, on Weixin, it's almost universally negative, and the government basically ridiculed and you know, being ridiculed by uh, everyone. And I think that the reason was probably quite simple is that people did not view this as a, a you know freedom be bestowed on them right and it's more a demand basically the, the government uh, is saying hey we want you to have three kids and the burden is on you know a younger generation to deliver and uh, clearly that's not going to happen the timing of it was terrible i mean it was obviously a reaction to the census news or it seemed that way to a lot of people. I mean, and yeah, I, I can totally understand why. So, I mean, you recently wrote an op-ed in the New York Times published, actually it was just yesterday, we're recording today on June 9th, uh, with your co-author Wang Feng from the um, UC Irvine, from the University of California at Irvine. You wrote about this three-child policy announcement. And in the piece, you, you write basically that, you know, the CCP had to expect this kind of a negative reaction from the Chinese public about the announcement. You know, there was a lot of, you know, ridicule, a lot of jokes on social media, even a lot of quite, you know, angry reactions and real frustration. Uh, and it led to, you know, I think uh, more discussions of pressing discussions about the costs of rearing a child, about skyrocketing costs of, of health care, of education, especially of sort of extra curricular education, which seems to be so necessary in cyber competitive in, in environment now, uh, of housing costs, especially. So, you know, given what the party must have known, why do you think, I mean, they knew that it would be unpopular, maybe even bound to fail. Why are they still pursuing it? And uh, why? what was the, the logic behind that? You know, I think there are two sides. First, you know, I think by announcing this policy, it's a clear an indication that they acknowledge there is a problem, that China is facing this, you know, demographic uh, crisis, and the government need to do something, need to address something. This is, you know, as a bigger country, it, with fertility at this level, it's not going to be sustainable in longer term. 
At the same time, they clearly are not willing to give up or even acknowledge the past mistakes. Right. Yeah. And they are they won't be in control. And I think that at the same time they probably know even you know the alternative would be just to totally give away the control altogether, let people to uh, choose whatever they want to do. But this that sort of would defeat their purpose as well. They want people to have three kids. That's partly, I think, the negative reaction is based on people say it's a demand. It's not a freedom. So why then frame it that way if they, they understood that that might be the reaction? Why not just, you know, if they're so concerned about a population that can't support China's long-term, you know, economic development, why don't they just get rid of all birth restrictions completely and make it a freedom? No, there are many different you know concerns. You know, first, foremost, you know, the Communist Party, the regime is established on population control. I'm sort of using population control in the broadest term, like Hukou policy is a form of population control. Sure. And uh, uh, the, right now, for example, if you want to buy a house in anywhere, not anywhere, in most of the cities in, in China, you need to show all kinds of population related, like your your, your employment status. Your you know tax contribution, all those forms are part of population control. So they have been rely on this form of control for a long time, and they simply could not give that up. That's first. So it's sort of macro bureaucratic inertia. Uh, it's not just the bureaucratic. I think it's more uh, uh, ideological. Uh, ideological. Yeah. Yeah. And you know the, a related point is that <laughs> this. You know, I think it's related to what's going on in a much more broader sense. The, the the control itself, the political control itself. For example, in Xinjiang, right for the past few years, they have been relying on the population control, birth control, to enforce certain policy. Right. Yeah, and they could not simply give up that that power. I see. I mean, so you know, it's been as you say a crucial part. Population control, broadly construed, has been a really important part of state policy for many decades now, really since the inception of the People's Republic. What do you see the party uh, facing in terms of a downside for them continuing to aggressively steer, you know, uh, try to steer this ship through this demographic crisis uh, through essentially political measures? You know, I think it's sort of, in a way, they set up for their own failure. You know, the ultimate power comes out with ultimate responsibility. So, Right now, I think, you know, for example, the fertility decline overall, we know with or without one-child policy, with social economic development, people would, you know, have, want to have fewer kids. And this, this has been witnessed all across the world. But now any population problem, people tend to, the most obvious answer and the blame is on the Chinese Communist Party. That, you know, because of this, yes, they certainly share, should, you know, bear the responsibility. So, but if we go back to the, the dawn of reform and opening, and if we go back to 78, 79, uh, were the leaders completely wrong to want to pursue, you know, aggressive curbs on population growth? I mean, weren't there some valid reasons to be concerned about population? I mean, in that time frame, I mean, not knowing what we know now, but, you know, the Club of Rome had published this limits of growth that painted a kind of, you know, Malthus light kind of picture of, of how resource constraints were going to really prevent economic growth and and uh, they were, it was going to be exacerbated by out-of-control population growth. Uh, at, at that point, it's not clear to me that anyone would have had the foresight to know that the Earth's carrying capacity was going to be. So Norman Borlaug had developed dwarf wheat, but we didn't know what the impact of the Green Revolution was going to be. You know, we had Yuan Longping develop hybrid rice in China, but we didn't know what the impact of the carrying capacity was going to be. Uh, I mean, and I think there, there weren't any cases that you could have pointed to clearly. We're still in the post-war baby boom, really, toward the end of it. You couldn't have pointed to a country and said, well, see, it's clear that once you reach a certain level of development, population growth falls off as, as a natural result. So are, were they completely just out of their minds, or did it make some, some sort of sense? Well, no, I think they, they were not out of their mind. It was a very much a rational choice based on some false understanding and false assumptions you know first for example the the one child policy came out of some very simple calculation by some planners basically if we want to quadruple our gdp in 20 years what can we do so you can so the, the calculation was hey we can grow our gdp roughly 7% per year 
and we need to keep our population in control and you know, do some simple math. Hey, let's keep it within 1.2 billion. But if you go back to this, the original paper, Song Jian and this paper, the calculation were clearly was not at one child. The one child was a, a convenient choice at the time, and actually we can also you know track a little bit of, uh, further back into 1977, 78 when the economic planners were doing it, you know, doing the calculation. That's first. Second is the relationship between economic development and population is much more complicated than a simple determinism. Sure, sure, sure. And third, you know, I think we you know right now, yes, of course, we we know that. Uh, we, you know, in hindsight, it's much easier to say that, you know, us, you know, we have enough food, enough, almost everything for everyone. And China, China's economic did, you know, fly out on, uh, on the economic liberalization. So that's, that is true. But, you know, at the same time, going back 40 some years, they knew even with the one child policy, the population would still be growing. And even with the one-child policy, that the one-child policy would bring all kinds of negative problems back. And so I think to their credit, we should give them the, the, the leaders the credit. They certainly were not a bunch of hypocrites. They enforced the policy from themselves to start with, from sure. their own family to start with. Yes, they certainly deserve certain credit. But at the same time, they had the opportunity to, to rectify, to correct this policy along the way to at least modify, to make it easier, to change the policy according to, you know, for example, by 1990, food supply certainly was no longer a problem anymore. Right, right. They, didn't, they, sh they did not have to wait so long. And, you know, the recent change, again, the three-child policy, it, it's senseless why they keep doing it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm curious what you think of this sort of techno-optimist position when it comes to China uh, and its population that... You know, advances in technology, AI, advanced robotics uh, would make up for the declining workforce, that it would actually help reduce the, the, the negative impact of unemployment while actually boosting productivity per, per you know, employed person, uh, that China was destined in any case to move away from labor intensive more towards more capital intensive growth. So, you know, hey, look, we back then in the 70s, we didn't know what the impact of the Green Revolution or the third agricultural revolution was going to be. Uh, but we now we are looking at, you know, we're already the tide of this new fourth industrial revolution is lapping our shores. We're seeing it and it's happening and shouldn't we have some faith? <laughs> I think certainly we should. And I think, you know, sort of referring back to 50 years ago, we did not believe, the, the pessimists certainly did not believe that we would have enough to eat. You know, the famine would be uh, rampant everywhere, uh, ongoing. And yes, certainly that is true in certain parts of the world. But overall, I think the population crisis or the population bomb has been diffused. So I think we should have some strong faith in the human ingenuity that we can innovate out of this. And demand is probably the best you know, incentive for innovation. And clearly, you know, people have made all kinds of predictions about Japan, Japan demise. Yes, if we, we compare it to China, that the situation you know, in terms of economic growth is not that great. But if we look at the, the life quality, and I think I like to use the life expectancy as the best measure. Right. You know, Japan's, you know, I'm, I'm, my assumption is life must not be bad there. No, it's not. I'm sure it's not bad at all. I mean, yeah, the one hears stories about villages that are utterly depopulated where they're making life-size dolls everywhere uh, to, to replace the young people that once lived there. Um, but yeah, no, right. Obviously, China is not the only country that's undergoing declining population growth. Um a lot has been said about Japan, but, you know, there's also South Korea, which reported that its population, you know, fell for the first time in the country's history recently. Uh, European countries like, you know, Italy and Greece for a long time. Um, France also, I think, uh, if you, you know, take out immigration, it, it, it's falling very fast. So governments have been scrambling to come up with policies to reverse these trends. Uh, from the, the Japanese experience, though, what, what, what do you think China can learn from this? I mean, besides, I think you, you hinted at this, and, and I totally agree, the, we're not measuring this right. I mean, it's not just a matter of GDP growth. I think that we should have some better sort of um, quality of life measurements. And by those, I, I, I wouldn't mind seeing 
just less breakneck development in China. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I think you know the the what's the purpose of the policy? I think that's a, a, probably a bigger question to ask. Is you know the, the the what's how do we measure a country or people's welfare? Is it you know yes, population health overall? As I mentioned, life expectancy itself is probably a, a very good measure, if not the best. At the same time, when we facing the demographic decline, you know, population decline, what kind of measure should we use? You know, for example, right now, there's quite a strong anxiety in terms of, uh, on the national pride, because if we project into the future, China's population will decline at a certain rate, and maybe by the end of this century, the, the Chinese population will be at 700 million. Is 700 million a small number? That's probably <laughs> no. not a small number to start with. And I think, you know, I always tell people we sh all should celebrate to start with that, you know, finally we put, you know, women finally have, have a choice to make. They are their own agency. They have the mean, they have the freedom to make the choice. And if we want to boost fertility, if we want to change the demographic trajectory, we should you know, front and center them, Absolutely. hear from them, you know, what they want exactly. and what a society, what the government can do. Right. I mean, it has to put women first. I mean, if, that's if, right. right. That's not what's happening. Um, you know, you just afflicted something and, and other people have, have talked about it too. Bert Hoffman at the uh, University of Singapore, he suggested that, you know, China's declining population uh, should actually be welcomed. That it's, you know, that a population, say, let's say, you know, 700 million people, uh, it would be much less of a burden uh, in terms of its environmental impact, its water resources uh, on you know limited agricultural land. What what do you you, you buy this idea, right? You you imagine that a, a China half its size by the end of the century would actually be a substantially happier. No, I I you know the the truth is I don't judge you know the society in this way. I don't. I try as a demographer. We prob I probably trained to be a. Uh, you know, link everything to population, but I sort of resent the idea of the simplistic version of demographic determinism. Yeah. That to say, hey, you know, back 50 years ago, China had too many people. Now China had, you know, and, and down the road, they'll have too few people. I think it's the same, coming back to the, you know, the climate change, the, the CO2 emission. If we look back for the last 30 some years, the major part, not, someone has, you know, calculated this, that over 90% of China's CO2 emission increase was not because of population change. Mm. It's because of lifestyle. Sure, yeah. sure. So, you know, human society is much more resilient in many ways. We should not focus on you know, the size itself. We should care about people. Yeah, I'm all for saying size doesn't matter as much. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I, I think it's what you do think matters is the impact on the structure of society and the sociological impact of, of, of this. And then you and, and again with Wang Feng have collaborated on a paper. Uh, is, has that been published yet? Or? It's uh, preprint. It's not out yet. Okay, preprint. Yeah. Um, looking at the social and sociological consequences of, of China's one-child policy, uh, the distorted gender ratio is, you know, one of the, the, the things gets talked about in a lot on uh, the age and the, the age structure and, and things like that. You spend you know a section of your paper discussing new legacies from the one-child policy uh, and how they have essentially reconfigured the, the whole Chinese family, right? Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, you know, some scholars are estimating that by 2050, people will not have aunts and and uncles, and they won't have you know. You know, it's already happening, and one of the numbers revealed by the, the latest census, 2020 census, is the average household size is at 2.6, although we should not equal household size with family size. Household size is a you know, statistical concept, basically counting who you currently living with. Right. And the family is much more, you know, it's a more sociological side. But that does tell, uh, tell, uh, does tell us what's going on in Chinese society. In, in the older image of Chinese family, we have, you know, three, four generations living together. Now, more or less, each generation live by themselves. And, uh, but the family connection is still very vital. China still, still you know, uh, value the family support in many different ways, although sometimes quite instrumental. You know, we yeah, all sure. save together to send someone to go to college or you know, coming to the United States as a, uh, uh, a student. So, yes, 
this social tie, you know, any individual's tie to it's, you know, the first tie we often in the social tie is family itself. This structure itself is drastically changing. People don't have siblings to start with, and now the because the one child generation is now the parents' generation, they they tend not to have siblings themselves. So they, that means their kids would not have uncles and aunts. But at the same time, I would say, you know, again, society is very much resilient. We often substitute one set of relationship with some different, you know, similar set of relationship, like cousins. Sure, it was for yeah. the Bali Ho and the Jolie Ho, it was cousins. And I now, I see how so many of the young people that I know, they talk about their cousins. They don't yeah. use 表弟 or 表姐 or, or, or 堂弟, 堂妹 or whatever. They just call them 我姐 or 我弟. That's right. And it's, the, it's the social relationship you form, how much you, you trust you know, the people next to you, you know, you play together, you grew up together. You, it's about a shared experience. But we're talking about, in a few years' time, no cousins even. I mean, when this generation that came up one child and doesn't have siblings, when they have uh, their kids, they're not going to have cousins, those kids. That's right. But, you know, this, uh, uh, the, 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 the demography is a, a little bit more nuanced than this. China's, you know, right now have about, you know, by some estimate, 150 million one-child families, but right. that means, you know, actually the, the majority of Chinese families are not one-child families, so right. they do have cousins, and yes, there's a distorted part because of the, this 1.5 child policy in the rural, most rural part of China for a long time, if the first child is a girl, people could uh, go on to have a second one, so there's a, it's a very much a distorted version of the family relationship. So, but zooming out from that, what, what are some of the other implications for individuals, particularly for women, uh, of, of government intervention in family planning programs for so many decades? Um, how are, you know, I mean, we, we, we read a lot about, uh, you know, surplus men or missing girls or, or you know, leftover women. Um, can you talk a little bit about how the public discourse around gender imbalance um, has, has, has changed? In, in, in Chinese thinking. So by some estimate, you know, the, a big number is there are right now about 30 million uh, uh, extra men, uh, you know, spread out about uh, 30, 40 uh, uh, years, you know, because of this uh, uh, sex, select, mostly because of sex selective abortion. Right. And that means, you know, by simple math, that this group of people you know, if we try to marry off, you know, every man with every woman, we we will be left with roughly about thirty million. But the problem is more structural than the number itself. You know, there are, there are a couple of things ongoing. First, that Chinese marriage is still sort of so-called hypergamy pattern. Basically, right. women tend to marry someone up. Up, you know, older, senior, have better socioeconomic status, you know, higher education. And because of the population size is shrinking, that means there will be fewer women in two or three years younger than the current generation of men. So that put a huge structural uh, pressure on the male side. The second part is also mostly socioeconomical. Hypergamy itself is have very strong socioeconomic tone. You need to have a, an apartment. You know, you have the the, the dory, uh, not dory, the the uh, Bride price. Yeah, Bride yeah, price. yeah, that's right. So, and that means the so-called surplus men are more likely to be concentrated in certain social class and certain geographic area. Right. And uh, you know, I. Uh, if you visit uh, like Gemin Lao Chu, they are villages. You know, you go in, there are you know lots of men sitting around and without family. Yeah. yeah. So in in other mammalian species, that is not a that's not a good thing. Usually, they they tend to be dangerous. That's right. You know, but you know there are articles and books being written linking this problem to. Um, uh, you know, like international relationship, someone actually feared say, hey, this could cause an international war because China has so many surplus men. I don't buy that argument. Right, or, of course. or linking to the crime rate. 
but we know crime is yes, there's certain element of that, but the the link is is quite weak. Okay, good. I'm glad yeah. to hear that. That's a tenuous link. But you know, maybe we, they should start thinking about changing laws around sex work or thinking about. Uh, you know, that's that's on the ground. It's already happening. Sex, you know, that's a huge industry. Sure, sure. It's it's a great industry, and uh, uh, you know, sex industry base indeed releases lots of negative energy, and also at the same time creates quite a bit of negative energy in the society. You've written about how you know the one-child policy itself drove gender inequality from both you know the the top. And the you know top down and from bottom up, but the policy's abolition uh, was also conceived, I think, is a gendered process, and I think you you argue that as well. I'll help us unpack this seeming contradiction here. Uh, you know, Im- imposing this was obviously gendered, but also lifting it seems to have been too. Maybe placing an undue burden on women. Yeah. So right now, for example, the, the reaction to the three child policy is clearly that people see this as a demand. And especially, I think, from women's perspective, they are now in, you know, the current generation of women is very different. Oh, yeah. They, they grew up, you know, with, you know, the, as many of them as a the single child, they be treated more or less equally, that sort of, and, you know, good, positive, unexpected effect of the one-child policy. And they have better education right now if, you know, the, there are more ma- females in college than males in right, college. Right. And they want their own career. They want in, their own independence. And they are delaying the childbearing, delaying the marriage, for the sake of all kinds of choices they are making. But now, if we think about this three-child policy, the demand is squarely on them. And That's we have right. all kinds of terms, very negative you know, uh, uh, terms putting on them. For example, shenyu itself, yes. mm-hmm. it's right on them. In a sort of everyone's, uh, you know, there's also rumor right now ongoing saying, hey, China may come out with certain policies that make you know abortion much much more difficult. Maybe taking away really? certain concepts. You know. oh, there, there might be just rumors on internet, you know, but it's not out of imagination. It, it, you know, the same logic applies. You know, the logic of China's population control, the one-child policy, all three-child policy, is a top-down process. The government dictate when and how many and who should have kids. Right. You know, Handmaid's Tale is in America, but I mean, it could happen in China too. That's right. Yeah, so yeah. I think it's, it, you know, there are already stories. I heard about stories that in, in in Shanghai, for example, in the old days, if someone walk into a clinic, you know, being uh, uh, being pregnant and by herself, the default question would be, you know, hey, do you want to keep the child or not? But nowadays, the, the doctors were giving instructions, try to persuade not to have the woman not to have the abortion. Wow! Wow! Yeah. It's already happening. It, it, that's not just anecdotal. This is actually something that you've documented. No, I heard about. I, I, someone okay. wrote down, wrote this down, and circulated on the internet. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I, know, so I think it would be really interesting to look into. There's what, whether, no statistics yet. Right, right. Yeah, but you know, I think we probably can find uh, doctors to talk about this because clearly they got you know, instructions from the top. No, I've, I've certainly had this thought before, and I think that I've witnessed it anecdotally just how, you know, as you said, one of the few kind of uh, surprisingly beneficial impacts of, of the one-child policy system was was uh, this kind of uh, rise in the stature of women. I mean, I figure that, that they, they've got, it's sort of a, a seller's market when it comes to, to women now. They, they can be a lot more picky. I think we'd probably statistically be able to document that hypergamy that you were talking about has increased, that, that sort of the st- status jumping is reaching even higher, that women can um, have, you know, sort of more choices in suitors and more agency in, in, in determining, you know, their life choices. Uh, that's, that's I, I think, positive impact of that is also one of the reasons why there's resistance to this third child announcement and uh you know that that seems just so tone deaf and so you know something of of an, a long ago patriarchy it's it's That's it reminds right. so, me of Lee Kuan Yew in 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 uh, the 90s or I guess when in Singapore started to, to worry about it and they were kind of you know instituting eugenics and urging people to get married and it was uh yeah, that's you know there there were discussions about the policy pair childbearing to education. If you have two kids, you automatically get into an elite school. Wow, something like that, you know. But the, you know, it, clearly, the, the experience in Singapore, you know, did not pan out well. You know, clearly, yeah. 
you know, in modern society, you no longer can basically put women as, you know, uh, childbearing slaves. So just um, the, the paper that you wrote, which is really interesting, you, you offer a new way of thinking for, I think, academics and scientists to consider demographic studies. And you alluded this before, you know, you don't like to see people just treated as mere statistics or mere numbers, um, you know, especially when it comes to things like these social engineering projects, like the one child policy. You write, I'm going to quote here, by treating people as only numbers and by relying on simplistic numerical exercises to inform policymaking and evaluation, demographic research has left the society out of population studies. Let's, I want to, this is, I think it's a great idea, and I want to give you a chance to unpack that a little more before we wrap up. Um, you know, t- tell us about what the, the alternative path that you offer is. What does a more socially inclusive approach to population studies look like? You know, I think, you know, this was partly was a reaction to the government's approach, that in the uh, late 2000-ish, uh, 2008, 2009, and government keep you know, boosting, say, hey, this is what's working. The, part, the one-child policy was necessary to, uh, to be there, and it was, was working very well. It, it was part of one main reason behind China's economic miracle, you know, talking about demographic dividend. And they keep using the number of that the one-child policy reduced China's population by 400 million. And that 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 number is so widely cited, even you know, like uh, the, the, the reputable journals like Economist and some you know other you know Chinese government also use that as an argument to to in the Copenhagen meeting say, hey, we have done our part. Right. <laughs> to, this is our you know contribution to the world's fight against climate change, and yeah. we have done our part. And someone actually wrote an op-ed in the financial. Uh, not a financial time, a, 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 a Canadian newspaper, but the title was the, the entire world should adopt the China's one-child policy. So, <laughs> so the idea was basically say, hey, it's all about number. And I think the same thinking is still there when we talk about, you know, we just you know, talked about this, that China's population will dwindle down to 700 million and that is linked to national glory. So the question we ask is, where is the people? We have, you know, the reason the society functions, we want to live this world, is that we are all people. We, we care about each and everyone's well-being and freedom. And so that's where the center should be. And that, that's, you know, I think, look back, the reason China's one-child policy failed was it did not treat people with dignity, with respect, did not. And why China's economic reform succeeded was it gave the agency, gave the freedom to its people. Hey, we know, we trust you, you can make good choices. Yeah. yeah, I get it. That's that's fantastic. You know, I, I wonder always, though, you know, we think about population decline uh in once we've achieved a level of development. But the, the argument that I hear sometimes from people who will still defend the one-child policy is that China wouldn't have achieved its economic development had it not curbed population growth. That It would have proved such a hindrance to uh, de- development that we wouldn't have seen the rates of growth that we saw in the 90s and the 2000s. Uh, is there anything to that? Do you think that... that- the, the probably, you know, so I think there are two things. Uh, there are certainly certain some truths to that. You know, if China's population was growing so re- rapidly, if it's already at, let's say, 16, uh, 1.6 billion or even more, that would be probably a different story. And, you know, given the, that, indeed, you know, I think I'm, I, I think the, the, the Rome Club and they have a varied argument. Yes, we only have one Earth to start with and there's this physical limit of space. But the other side of argument, I think there are a couple of things we, we need to unpack is that the China's population, you know, fertility decline did not start from one-child policy. China's fertility decline actually one decade before the one-child policy. That's first. Ah, wow. That, that, yeah, so China's fertility was roughly 5.8 kids per woman <laughs> oh in, my God. in, in, in the 1970. Uh, right, right, right. And in less than one decade, China's pop, you know, fertility was already at 2.8. Wow. That's right. And the, the magic behind success, there are, there are a couple of things. Yes, there's, you know, same tactic were used, you know, as they were used in the, the enforcement of one-child policy, basically. You know, the slogan at the time was, 
later, longer, and fewer. Basically, push people to marry at a later time, having longer birth interval, and having at most three kids. But the most important, I think, you know, as this is true for most of developing countries. There's a hidden demand. It's not at the time women or you know peasants want to have as many kids as possible. That was the ideal. But people were very rational. People want you know control their fertility in in certain way, and the government at the time provide the means to control their fertility. So there are two sides. One is the push, one is the pull. That people want to control their fertility, and the government at same at same time pushed all kinds of measures to to them. That's that was a that worked like a miracle. That you know in less than one decade, fertility cut you know more than fifty percent. I did not know that. I hadn't known that it had dropped so radically just in the course of the decade. That's right. And the truth is, the other truth is that within the first decade of the one-child policy, Chinese fertility did not drop. It only swinged around about two point five. Basically, the government, you know, policy the enforcement come in waves. That right. sometimes they tied up a policy, but the the resistance was so strong they have to, you know. Retreat and then they tied again. So for the entire 1980s, that fertility was you know swing around 2.5 kids. So it's always been more more tightly enforced though in the urban areas and right. in, in especially the higher tier cities. What is the impact of that? The fact that that fertility rates have remained much higher in the countryside, uh, whereas they they almost immediately fell beginning right after 1981 uh, in in the cities. What's the impact, the, the, the sociological impact of that? So you know, I think that this is tied back to the, Chinese, the old Chinese system, the socialist system, the country there was not just one China. There were two you know, uh, segments of Chinese society. One is the urban part, one is the rural part. The urban part was protected. The reason the fertility could you know, drop so quickly was because the government had much better control of that, that part of uh, population and in exchange, for the you know provision of all kinds of social benefit and the, for the countryside because the government did not have you know uh, to provide them or could not afford to provide them all kinds of benefit they had to open you know losing the policy so that means you know this sort of setting the motion of this later down urbanization that we say the cheaper labor keep coming from rural areas. Right, but that's self-serving too. I mean, because they understood that was a big tailwind to China's export-led growth, right? I mean, no, I don't. I don't think that even Zhao Ziyang, you know, envisioned the export-oriented development. Did not envision China could develop so quickly. And remember, the discussion in the early 1990s was like we're, we're afraid of. Rule to urban migration. Right. They try to regulate and you know, try to tamp it down. But by by you know the the late nineteen nineties, it was seen as a an, an absolute blessing. Though they understood that that was what was driving the engine. That's right. But you know the power. There's a very strong policy contradiction. If you see that's the country's future, you should provide them the basic protection. For example, give them access to uh, education. Education, right, right. right. No, that's not happening. Right. They still sort of manage China in sort of a, a very much a two-tiered system. Well, Taiyong, it, it's what a wonderful treat to have our first <laughs> in-person interview to, to you know be able, able to do this. It was so long. It was two years ago that we sat down and had lunch in that Sichuan restaurant here that's in, right. in town. Yeah, I can't believe how fast time goes. Well, lots more to talk about the next time that we have you on the show. Meanwhile, um, let us move on to recommendations. Before we do that, I do want to remind listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by China, And if you like what we're doing with Seneca, with China, China Stories, with the China in Africa podcast, with New Voices, with Strangers in China, and all the other shows in the network. The best way to show your appreciation, because you know these things do cost money after all, is to become a subscriber to SubChina Access. Not only do you get our daily newsletter, but you also get discounted admission to events. Yes, events. And we are going to be having those again before too long, so watch this space, uh, including free admission to live podcasts, which we will also be bringing back. And also the secret RSS feed to be able to listen to Seneca on Monday afternoons U.S. time rather than waiting until Thursday like the rest of the chumps. So sign in, uh, show your support for what we're doing. Uh, let's go on to recommendations. Uh, Taeyong, what do you have for us? I have a, you know, a recommendation for a not so new book, but it's not old as well. The reason I pick up this book, it's a book by uh, NPR reporter. His name is Scott Tang, and yeah. the book is uh, A Village With My Name. The yeah. reason I picked up this book 
was, you know, I knew it was there, but the reason, because of the one-child policy, and he had a serial podcasting and reporting on the one-child policy, so I said, oh, it's time for me to read this book. And it's refreshing in many ways, not just the, uh, the one-child policy. Now I see the world is sort of, again, divided again. His family history is so interesting, basically, the, at the time of transition or change, his you know, ancestors, his great-grandpa, you know, went out of country and they scattered around the world. And now I see the world sort of, again, being divided again. I sort of anticipate maybe, you know, 30 years from now, my son might ask me the same question. Hey, can you bring back to our old village? What's the, the world is sort of twisted in a very strange way. He, that book is great. I, I interviewed um, Scott about that book for Seneca. Um, you know, Scott is a longtime uh, radio reporter, so he's got a terrific voice and he's really fun to talk to. He speaks very well. The book, I mean, what's interesting is, you know, the collaborationists in his, in his past, the sort of embarrassing, you know, Japanese collaborationist past. Actually, he had one Japanese uh, ancestor. That's right. Uh, really, really uh, fascinating. He's on the other side of his family, not the collaborationist side. Um, and it, yeah, it's a fascinating book, and, and Scott's just a terrific guy. Uh, hopefully, he's still listening to the show. So, hey, Scott, get in touch, man. Miss you. Um, great recommendation, though. I, I love that book. I, I haven't revisited it in a while, but I'm going to recommend uh, two things. One is a television show. Uh, it's called The Kaminsky Method, starring Michael Douglas. It's on Netflix. Uh, the first two seasons also stars Alan Arkin. And uh, also Kathleen Turner is on quite a few of them. And you'll remember back in the 1980s, Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner starred in uh, some movies together, Romancing the Stone and some other stuff. But uh, so, so I was skeptical at first, but it turns out to be actually just like the right amount of earnest. It's not just, you know, cringy and embarrassing. It kind of takes place in a similar universe, a milieu to Kirby Enthusiasm, you know, old Jewish guy. Uh, in Hollywood, you know, Hollywood agents and, and uh, acting coaches. And, and it's got, you know, elements of Barry in it, too, which is another great show on HBO. Uh, the Kaminsky Method, though, it it lets you kind of root for the protagonist without embarrassment. And it's not going to, you know, make you just sort of uncomfortable the way that some of these other comedies do. But it, it's it's got a gooey middle and that's something I, I love about it. Uh, the book is a novel that my daughter recommended to me called All the Light We Cannot See uh, by a writer named Anthony Doerr, D-O-E-R-R. It was actually awarded the Pulitzer Prize in 2015. Um, it centers on the lives of two young people uh, in the Second World War. And it's very, very good so far, very moving. Um, my daughter was just dissolving in puddles of tears after finishing it, and so I knew it was probably something I should I should read. Uh, so check it out. It's called All the Light We Cannot See. Uh, the, the girl in it is blind, and her father uh, is part of that sort of pantheon of great uh, literary fathers uh, who is just the most adorable man I've ever come across in literature. So if he suffers a bad, a tragic fate in this, I'm just not going gonna, gonna to lose it. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so my two recommendations. Thank you so much. Sayo. Sure, my pleasure. Yeah, what a pleasure to talk to you. And uh um, looking forward to having you back on the show. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.